Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Hey guys! Good morning! Oh, there's a lot of you out there. Um, Hey, I'm Hannah. I am not Trey, as I don't know if you can see, he's over there. Um, But I am Trey's older sister, so I am shorter, but maybe wiser. Um, So we'll see how you all feel at the end of this. Um, And if you've ever wondered, you're like, wow, how many family members does Trey have at Contrast? There's not as many as you think. We are just normally the loudest people in the room. So it feels like there's a lot of us. Um, So I love being a part of Contrast. My husband, Adam, he's right there, and I moved here in March with our two little boys who, um, if you haven't seen them, they're normally the ones running around after service with the Proctor boys, turning the chair carts into like go-kart races. Um, And I would apologize, but you guys are the ones who are normally telling them how cute and funny they are, so you've brought a lot of this on yourselves. Anyways, so back to Revelation and the end of the world. Um, Revelation is actually a really cool book. This video that we just watched is from a website called The Bible Project that I really love and use a lot when I'm studying. Um, I think Revelation gets kind of a weird, bad rap, and so that's why I wanted to show you guys this. I feel like it breaks down the book and kind of where we're headed with this series. Um, If anyone ever tries to tell you that Contrast isn't a progressive church, you just tell them that they let a woman open their series on Revelation. And yeah, so uh, Revelation, uh, it's sadly, I think it's been made a lot less cool over the years by just some weird stuff, the fact that it feels kind of scary and a little inaccessible. I think there are lots of people who would just end the New Testament at Jude, and that's fine, go with that. Um, So like this video talked about, so we're gonna kind of break down Revelation And then we're going to head into our Seven Churches series. So I just want to kind of reiterate a couple of things that that video showed us because I think they're really important for us to know as we move forward in this. And they kind of lay a really good foundation for what, essentially what Jesus is writing to these seven churches and what he really wants us as the reader to take away from it. Um, So the first thing I really want you guys to remember as we walk through this is that the genre is apocalyptic literature. So the Bible has all different kinds of genres of books, and they're written for specific purposes and to specific people. Um, And so apocalyptic literature is cool in that the purpose behind it is not to tell the future or to, um, to be like this scary end of the world, end times situation. It's more of this, this ability for us to see outside of the ordinary. So think about us as humans and how we view the world. We see the world through a very specific lens that's essentially that's created around our worldview, our life, the things that, that we see every day. And so we tend to fall into patterns of thinking that are sometimes hard to get out of. And the first century church was no different than that. Um, and our viewpoint and how we see the world can limit our ability to see God's greater plan for the world and how we as an individual fit into that, as the church fits into that. Um, And so what apocalyptic literature does is it kind of pulls back the curtain 
on God's greater plan, and it allows him to kind of challenge us to look at things in new ways that we wouldn't have maybe seen before had he used very straightforward imagery. I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, we wonder, why didn't he just tell us exactly what we need to know? Why is this not clear? Why is this not more straightforward? And I think there's a lot behind that where reading literature like this forces us to kind of use our brains in a different way. It's a different muscle that allows us to really think critically about things that if it were a lot more straightforward, I think we would just kind of breeze right over it. Um, so, for example, I'm a parent. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. My kids only see the smallest slice of the world that's right in front of them, right? They are selfish, fallen human beings, and we see that all the time in everything that they're doing. Um, so as a parent, when my five-year-old, we're driving in the car, and he looks out the window, and he sees this really cool Jeep, and he asks me, Mom, why don't we have a Jeep? And I say, well, you know, different cars cost money, and that's an expensive car. And he looks at me, and he goes, well, why don't you just get more money? And it's like, okay, yes, I can see how your perspective would allow you to see that, but let me explain to you a little bit more about our family. And that's my job as his parent is to help him to see the world bigger than it looks right in front of him. And that's what Revelation does for us, is it allows us to see God's plan for the world differently and in a bigger way than we would look at it just from our own human perspective. And the cool thing about Revelation is that Jesus, so as this video showed us, Jesus is really the one speaking and John's just kind of scribing down what he's writing. He, what he's doing is he's uncovering sin, he's highlighting faithfulness, he's prodding these churches into spiritual health by helping them to see what's really happening in their first century world in a different light. Um, and so if there's a second thing that I really want you guys to hear from the overview of Revelation, it's that Revelation is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Revelation is such a cool book because we learn so much about Jesus and his heart for the world and his heart for this church and his heart for us, honestly, but it's hidden behind some of this scarier, confusing imagery. But we have to remember that this was a letter written to a people at a very specific time in history. They didn't think about us reading this when it was first written. You know, and so we read it now, and there are holes in our understanding and gaps that we try to fill with our own knowledge and our own study. But we, unless we anchor what we know about the Bible in the historical context of the Jewish people at that time, we're going to come up short anytime we try to interpret any of it through our own lens. And so I think if we look first at what was it like to be a, a Christian at this time, you know, 50, 60 years after Jesus was crucified, what was going on in their world, it helps us to get a clearer picture of the entire book of Revelation and what it means to us as Christians now in 2022. Um, because Revelation can't mean to, mean to us something that it didn't mean to the Jewish people at that time. So we have to take all our application from it in light of that. Which brings us to the seven letters. So we are going to do the seven letters over the next seven weeks. So we're going to get to know these churches. We're going to hear about what they're struggling with, what they're doing well. Um, and I think that a good question for us to answer initially is why these seven churches? I have a map for you all to look at. I'm a little nerdy and love that stuff. Um, so these seven churches that these letters were written to were seven very real churches in Asia Minor in the first century. These letters were probably written, like I said, 50, 60 years after Jesus' death. Um, so these churches were sat along an established circular trade route 
in, it's, a, it's modern day Turkey is what it is, but it would have been called Asia Minor back then. Um, and so these churches, the way this letter would have been written, I think sometimes we think like this letter went to this church and this letter went to this church. It would have been all these letters, the whole book of Revelation, and it would have traveled around to all of these churches. And so they would have read all of this in its entirety, not just the little letter to their own church. Um, and what's cool about these churches and what we're going to see over the next seven weeks is that they struggle with the same problems that we struggle with today as churches in 2022. Um, and Jesus speaks really specifically into a lot of these things that give us insight into what we can do about some of this stuff today. Um, and just a little, um, so we talked a little about how Revelation has some imagery that can be confusing. You're going to hear John, when he's writing these and Jesus is, he's describing Jesus' words in these letters, talk about the lampstands and the angels. So each of these letters is addressed to an angel of the church. And so most scholars would agree that that just means their pastor or their leader. The, the title pastor was different than what it means today. Um, but these, when there's talking about they're being written to the angels, it's the leaders or the pastors of these churches. And then the lampstands is just imagery for the churches because we're talking about these churches being a light in these dark cities where they are being planted at. Um, and so when you see that, that's just a little, a little uh, background on that imagery. Um, so let's check out the church in Ephesus. That's where we're going today. Um, I hope you're all with me. Revelation is a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose. When I was watching the Bible Project video again, I was like, whew, okay, we can do this. Um, so Ephesus. Ephesus was the biggest church in this area of Asia Minor. And something that I learned while studying for this is that the six other churches were actually planted off of the church in Ephesus. So I guess it's kind of the movement church of the... <laughs> The, the seven churches. Um, so Ephesus was the metropolis of Asia, essentially is, how, is what it's called. It was situated on this major trade route um, between, it had a major land trade route and a sea trade route, and it kind of connected Rome and the east. So just a ton of people came through here. It was a huge, powerful commercial and cultural center. It was super diverse. Um, it was, it was kind of just like a, a, a L.A. or a New York City of that time. Um, and its native goddess, so a lot of these cities had a goddess associated with them, was the goddess Diana, which we also know as Artemis. Um, and a big draw of the city was that they had the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people would come from all over to worship at these temples, this temple to participate in the, the rites and the rituals that were there um, and to buy souvenirs, essentially. There's a story in Acts that we'll get to eventually where the people who make these souvenirs weren't super happy with Paul and his preaching. Um, so what, what we can take away from this is that the church in Ephesus was in a place where there was a lot happening and a lot happening that was super contrary to the teachings of Jesus. Um, there was a ton of idol worship. There was a ton of sexual immorality. Um, and there was, and the church was suffering for it because they had different sects, which we're going to talk about the Nicolaitans later, were a sect of Christians who eventually succumbed to kind of these cultural pressures and went off and did some of these things that weren't okay by the early church's standards. Um, and it was hard soil for a church to plant in. And I think about the church in Ephesus and how it kind of branched out from there. And I feel proud of them learning what I've learned now about the city of Ephesus. Um, it was super secular, super worldly. 
Um, there was a ton of entrenched sin, and so they were really fighting an uphill battle when it came to existing as a community of Christ followers and really walking against the cultural norms at that time, which I don't know if that feels familiar to anyone <laughs> as to what it's like to be a Christian now. <laughs> um, but what's cool is we see, so um, in the Bible, there is the book of Ephesians, and then there is the letter to Ephesus in the book of Revelation. These are both addressed to the same church, just there is a big time gap in between. So the book of Ephesians is Paul writing to this fledgling church in Ephesus right after it first started. And he writes some stuff that really foreshadows what we're going to talk about in this Revelation letter to Ephesus. He talks about um, what a vibrant church they were. He says that he, ever since he heard about their faith in the Lord, he hasn't stopped giving thanks for them. That they, And so he prays for them. He says, I see your faithfulness. I see what you're doing. I see how hard you're working to establish this church in this really hard place. And he's praying that they would be rooted and established in love and that they would know that the love of Jesus is, is, would would surpass anything else. And so he's speaking this and foreshadowing this over them, saying, like, you're working and you're doing ministry in, har in a hard place. And just remember, you have to be rooted and established in this love. And so that, so 35 years later, so Paul speaks that into this early Ephesian church, and he says, hey, as long as you remember that the love of Christ roots everything else that you're doing, you guys will be good. So 35 years later, this church has has grown and flourished and planted other churches, and now we come to the letter to Ephesus in Revelation. And so we're going to read this letter. We're going to split it into two parts. So we're going to start. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And we're just going to read the first half of this. So, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following. So this is Jesus telling John, hey, write this to the church in Ephesus. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's saying Jesus is holding these seven churches in his hand, and he walks among them. He's present with them in their ministry. Um, I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles but are not, and have discovered that they are false. I am also aware that you have persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. That's pretty good, right? Like, if you're the church in Ephesus, you're like, okay, yeah, good job us. You're giving yourself a pat on the back. I mean, Jesus is pointing out some really great things that this church is doing, you know? They are, they're persistent in their work in Ephesus. They are patient when they have to wait for things to happen or to see the Lord's plan come to fruition there. They have a level of moral excellence. You know, they are holding themselves above this, like, the standard of the culture of that day. And they are passionate about evangelism. You know, they want their church to flourish. They want people to come to know the Lord. Um, and they've endured much for his name. I love that line, endured much for his name. That encompasses so much. I mean, this church has existed for 35 years now. And have endured much for the sake of Jesus's name. And so I think Jesus wanted to start them off with this encouragement. As often I do this with my kids, you want to tell them something they're doing well before you kind of like hit them with like, but let me, let me direct your attention over here. So the church in Ephesus is doing some good things. You know, they are 
at a place in their ministry where they're well-established, they're rooted, they are, they're doing some good stuff. So now we have to look at the second part of this letter and see what comes next. So now we're going to be in verse 4. And it says, But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Therefore, remember what, the high, what high state you have fallen from and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. But you do have this going for you. You hate what the Nicolaitans practice, practices I also hate. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So this is kind of rough for our poor Ephesian church. John had just listed all this great stuff that they were doing and then basically invalidated it all with one sentence. He's saying essentially all of this that you're doing means nothing because you've lost that first love that you had for Jesus and that, that, um, that passion and that love that motivated all of this other stuff. And so what you're doing now is just kind of empty. Um, and that's what's hard about the Ephesian church, right? The failure of the Ephesian church was not a slacking off of activity. They weren't lazy. It wasn't giving up under suffering. They weren't bending under the face of persecution. They weren't tolerating evil. They were holding high standards within their church and their community. Um, and it wasn't even a denial of truth. They weren't over here spewing heresy or loosening their theological standards. It was just, it was much more sneaky than that, right? It was a it was something that creeps into our churches, churches like Contrast, churches all over the world. It was just a complacency, you know? It's a cooling off of that warmth and that attachment that you once felt to Jesus Christ that essentially it empties everything that they're doing of that greater purpose. And that's something that I think when I study the church in Ephesus, I think, but oh, but give them a pass. Look at all the good stuff they're doing. You know, look at how they're in their community. They're doing good things. But that's a hard, that's a hard thing about complacency and the hard thing about walking slowly away from that first love that you have with Jesus is that it's just like, it's slow, right? It's not like you wake up one day and the church at Ephesus had lost this love and this zeal. It's just a little less time spent adoring him and meditating on him and getting to know him in favor of one more event or one more outreach opportunity. You know, it's a loss of that warmth or graciousness that once characterized their relationships in favor of hard theological lines or um, right living. You know, these are, it, it's not that he's telling them to stop doing the good things that they're doing. But he's reminding them that without love, all the good stuff they're doing means nothing. And I think something that we don't talk about a lot when we think about um, our passion and why and our, the love of Jesus and why we do these things is that we can do a lot in our own human strength. <laughs> um, and I think like even ministry or just like things in life, it's not wrong to be competent. It's not wrong to show up to my job and do things well and to do them to a high level of excellence of my own strength, you know? Like, that honors the Lord. He wants us to work hard at everything that we do and to do things well. But there's a level where when we bring that same mindset into ministry and we think, like, I can do all these things, a lot of times we can do a lot of things, you know? Without Jesus, the church can still do really great things in a community. It can still have people that love each other and treat each other well. It can still be growing and moving forward. But if you're doing it in your own human strength, the, 
it's just empty. That why behind it is lost. And what's so crazy to me about the church in Ephesus is that this is the only church, we're going to look at all seven of them over the next couple of weeks, and see all of the things that they, these churches have done wrong. But Ephesus is the only church that Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand from. So we're going to see the things the other churches are struggling with, sexual immorality, complacency, other stuff, and think, well, that seems worse. It seems worse than what the Ephesian church is doing. But Jesus is starting with the Ephesian church. He's drawing this really hard line in the sand because what he's saying is, at the end of the day, what's worse than forsaking your first love? So, yeah, I could, let me take a deep breath here and move to the next thing. So Jesus is really driving home this point that nothing is worse than losing this love and this commitment to him. A church can have a lot of outwardly impressive things going for it, but the absence of that love means that the church is spiritually dead and kind of on life support. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, you can't have a lampstand. You can't be a light in the darkness without my love fueling that light. You're just a lampstand with no flame at that point. And that is disappointing to hear as a church because we want to believe that the things that we're doing is founded in Jesus and it's founded in the right mindset and the right heart. And a lot of times it is. Hear me when I say this. A lot of churches and a lot of people are doing great work for Jesus with, this in the, with their heart in the right place. But it's hard to know if they're really prioritizing their first love. It takes a little deeper look at it. Um, so how do we define that? How do we look at ourselves and the church and ask ourselves, are we really prioritizing Jesus? Are we doing all of these things? Is our action following this love? Um, and there's just a couple things that I can think of off the top of my head that can help us kind of take our temperature in terms of that. And I think um, as a corporate church, as Contrast Church, the greatest indicator of a church's spiritual health is the individual spiritual health, right? The only person in a church that you can affect is yourself. So I think we have to look inward and we have to ask ourselves some of these questions and we have to really think through, are we doing some of these things? You know, are we truly learning to love the Bible? Are we reading it with a true desire to know more about Jesus, to understand his plan, his greater, greater plan for the world, for humanity? Um, do we have spiritual directors who point us to wisdom and teaching? Are we living in community and practically walking out some of these, um, these things that we're learning and this love that Jesus is, is filling us up with? Um, and I think then a, a twin question to that is how do we know if we're abandoning our first love? Do we have people who will be honest to discern that and let us know? And also, are we humble enough to listen? It's really hard to speak into someone else's life when you see sin or you see them struggling in a certain way. But it's even harder knowing that they probably won't react well to it. Um, so just a level of humility and asking ourselves, like, am I humble enough to hear from someone else in my life that maybe I'm missing some of these areas that maybe I I once was really strong in. Um, and I'll, as I'm studying this, I feel like Jesus kept bringing this back to Adam and I when we first started in ministry. So we, um, Adam and I were youth pastors in California for five years, and it was really good. We, I, if you guys heard me tell my story, um, 
a couple months ago, I talked a little bit about this. It was just fun. It was good ministry. We were straight out of college. We moved to the mountains of California, and we were just, we were in it. Like, we were living in our ministry, you know. We were baptizing kids in Lake Tahoe. We were seeing whole families come to know Jesus because their kids were showing up at youth group. You know, we were seeing kids walk in the doors of church who had never even heard of Jesus, like didn't even know who he was. Um, and it was hard soil, and it reminds me a lot of the church in Ephesus, you know, so secular and so just, like, resistant to, like, the love that Jesus offers and, like, letting that even have, like, a foothold at all in that community. Um, and it was really fun. I mean, I remember coming home one time, and Adam wasn't even home, and there were two teenage boys in our apartment eating Taco Bell and playing video games. Like, they were just there. Um, and it, and it was so cool because I feel like Adam and I just had this heart for it. We had this ministry for it, and we just loved it. But slowly, you know, you have to fill out one more permission slip, or I just have to prepare this one more event, or I just have to have lunch with this one more kid. And you are doing, 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 doing. And you wake up one day, and you're like, I am not sure why I am doing what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> And that is a much longer story just with our family and how that brought us here to contrast. But we are, I would say we are still healing from that, the end of that season and how, like I said, it's just so slow. You just you take tiny steps in the direction of efficiency and activity and ministry and every step that you take towards that without letting Jesus fill your cup back up and drawing from that deep well of his love, just, um, it burns you out and it dries you up. And that's kind of what happened to us. At the end of it, we realized we had done a thousand things, but we were both so empty at the end of it. And we had lost that, that connection to our first love, right? And that desire behind why we wanted kids to come to know Jesus, you know, because he loved us and he loved them. And and I think in, uh, in our heads, we knew that, you know, but it's like it was missing in our hearts. And so we carried that baggage with us into our next ministry in Michigan, you know, having not fully allowed ourselves to, like, replenish and to realign ourselves with our first love. You know, we were still just doing and we showed up in Michigan and we were just doing. Um, and it was really hard. And it set a lot of other things in motion that we are still walking those out today and we are still healing that stuff and the Lord has been really faithful through all of it but it is still it's still a story in progress and I look back on our time in California and I see all the ways the Lord moved and I can see how we did ministry and we did these things for the Lord without having any of those things in place that I talked about a couple minutes ago, you know, we didn't have mentors or people speaking into our lives saying like, hey, you're doing too much. You need to spend more time with Jesus, you know, or you need to like realign your hearts in this area. You know, we didn't have people leading us in Bible study. We were always leading everyone else, you know, and we didn't have these safeguards put into place and these patterns and these habits that allowed us to thrive in ministry while also doing this really good stuff. Because at the end of the day, the Ephesian church is doing good stuff. And Jesus isn't saying stop. He's saying keep doing that. Keep doing all these good things. But return to me. Let me fill you back up with that fire and that love that was there at the start. And then walk all this stuff out in that. Um, so to bring this all back around, every night at dinner with our kids, we remind them what 
did Jesus say was the most important command when the rich young ruler asked him? He said the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that's it. Everything else comes out of that. You know, the Ephesian church had forgotten. Paul warned them 35 years before this letter was written, you need to be rooted and established in this love. You have to do it. Jesus is telling us, you've got to love the Lord. Everything else comes out of that. Loving your neighbor, every ministry that you do, every, every piece of your life flows out of that. And that's the cool thing and something that we've learned over the last couple years. Being rooted in Jesus' love allows you the space and the freedom to fully engage in your community, to fully engage in your ministry. You know, not everyone is going to be in full-time ministry, and that's totally fine. Your ministry is your life. It's your, the everyday things that you do when you wake up that honor the Lord with the people that he puts in your life. And being rooted in that love gives you the ability to walk all of that out in a way that is so honoring to the Lord and the way that furthers his kingdom. And I have lived 31 years, which really isn't that long. It's very long compared to some of you. Um, <laughs> but if there's one thing I've learned, it's that. You know, it all starts with that. Um, and I'm going to invite the band up and challenge you guys. We are going to take some time in reflection. We have communion. Up here, it's all gluten-free. Um, we have communion at the back. We have people who would love to pray with you at the back. Um, just think through some of these questions we're going to put up on the screen. Give yourself some time to really um, just to, to think, to, to remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. I don't know. Some of you may have met Jesus like I did when you were really little. Some of you may have met Jesus very recently. And I don't, um, and maybe some of you, this is great, and you're in a season of your life where you feel like, yeah, I am working out of this deep well of love. I do feel like I haven't been complacent or lost this. That's great. Continue on in that. Think about ways that you can continue on in that. But if you feel like, maybe I, I have struggled with some of this, I would challenge you to ask yourself, what can I do? You know, get prayer. Spend time with Jesus in communion. Get a mentor, a spiritual guide, or, guide, or a spiritual advisor. Someone to guide you on this walk. It's not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done in community. Contrast is doing really great things in Grandview. I love being a part of it. But at the end of the day, we're responsible for our hearts first and foremost. And then we bring that to what our, the Contrast community is. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.